This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Sign, a world-renowned graphic artist with the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Andy Wilson, along with Dean Clark and also Hugh Sign. Today we welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast singer, songwriter, guitarist, and Gibson brand ambassador. That sounds super important. Jared James Nichols. Nichols' howling guitar stands tall, as it should, since Jared is six foot five. He delivers a one-two punch of gritty vocals straight from the gut and supercharged guitar work that's led him to perform alongside such icons as Slash, Billy Gibbons, Zach Wilde, and even the late Leslie West, which is super cool. By keeping it simple, Jared remains primed to leave his imprint on rock and roll forever. Welcome to the Music Buzz Jared James Nichols. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, guys. I'm so glad to be here. Love uh, Down the Drain. Very cool song. I watched both videos. I love the video with the kids in it playing. I did something similar to a song of mine, passing off the, the hanky and, you know, she brings it up later. Very, very nice. Very cool. But it's a great song, man. Your tone and your playing is just fantastic. Your note choices are great. And the, the live video, what I liked about that was fantastic three-piece rock and roll. Here we are. Love it. I mean, that's what you are. You guys can pull it off. Hardly anybody can pull something off three-piece like that, especially nobody even tries to do it these days. Like you said, with Down the Drain and uh, with the live aspect version of that, it's it's kind of like, I don't know. I mean, I feel like maybe I'm you guys telling you guys this. You're like, yeah, of course. But nowadays, it's very rare to find players that aren't on tracks. They, uh, they're okay playing without a click. They, they want to take chances. They want to improv in song structures. So for me, doing the trio thing, all my heroes, basically, especially in the guitar world, were doing trios. So that always felt like that was my goal. I want to front a trio. And you're right. There is a lot of like sonics you got to consider. But I, I just I love that simplicity of, you know, guitar, bass, drums, vocal and, you know, really trying to make it all work in those confines. The vocal on Down the Remarkable. It's hard to think you could do another vocal after that, but it's pretty amazing. Definitely a throat shredder for sure. I know. I have this knack for throat shredding. I've never lost my voice, knock on wood. The throat thing, it was just like, yeah, is that good? And everyone's like, doesn't that hurt? No, I'm good. So I'm lucky. Hang on to that. Keep knocking on wood, right? I know. <laughs> but, well, you know, you're talking about, you know, not playing with the click and stuff like that. And I noticed like on Bad Roots, it kind of had a machine head, deep purple kind of a feel, I thought. It was really kind of fast and furious. But I like the way the tempo's slower at the beginning. It gets a little faster. And then it comes to that triplety section. And then it, just, it 
pulls back for a second, just like music did in the 70s. Drummer, cool double bass stuff in it. Great, great tune, man. And way to, I applaud you for doing that because nobody does that. Nope. People are afraid. To, oh, my God. We're not going to have a go drum machine, you know, banging along with this or something. It's really cool. For everything with this record, with the new material, everything, my whole headspace was I wanted to make a record that served for my live show. So with this record, we went into a studio here in Nashville called Blackbird, and we recorded computer-free, straight to tape. So we set up as if we were playing a live show. Was John McBride involved? I know John. John was not involved in this session, but he is a great dude. Yeah, I worked with a guy named Eddie Spear. Met him through uh, the guys in the band, The Rival Sons. Yeah, great band. And uh, Eddie, he's uh, he's from England. He got brought over here by Jack White. He's probably mid-30s. He's crazy. He's like, yeah, let's do it. He loves cutting. You know, like he's he's all about that kind of unorthodox recording stuff. So we essentially set up as if we were tracking a live show. He put very little mics in the room. And, you know, like you're talking about, it's so funny listening with I laugh now because in the moment, you know, like when you're in the heat of battle, you know, like on that song, Bad Roots, I don't use a pick. So I'm down with my thumb, you know, dun, 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 and uh and it's so funny because I'll hear when we all get excited, it's like, okay, here comes our chorus. We sound like giddy kids, man. And we're like, all right, solo section, let's go. You know what I mean? Just push it a little. Yeah. yeah. You can tell that song is probably my favorite of the newer ones that I've heard so far. And and it's interesting to hear that you got how you guys recorded it. Cause I thought, man, I bet this sounds really badass live, but it sounds badass anyway, but it's because it is live. I was watching your hand when you did the tribute uh, to Mississippi Queen, just from your living room. It's like I'm watching finger picking. I mean, I, I know Jeff Beck does it, but just hearing that amount of dexterity and accuracy and speed, pretty impressive. Yeah. Why did you why did you decide to do that? How did that come about? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, that came about because I'm a lefty. Truth be told, when all my friends were getting into guitars and people were joining the talent show when I was a kid, I wanted nothing to do with the guitar. I wanted to be the drummer because the drummer was the physical one, man. You could rock it, right? And I'll keep it short, but uh, my brother, older brother had a friend who had a drum set in the corner. It was a Pearl Export Series. I'll never forget. It was this dark blue drum kit sitting there full of dust. He was like kind of like a rich kid. And we were like, I was like, hey, man, what are you doing with that drum set? He was like, I don't know. I don't even play it. And I was like, can I use it? Can I borrow it? So we got it in my brother's car, took it to my parents' house. At this point, I was 14 and went in our basement, you know, totally unfinished basement. And it's the middle of winter. My dad's a construction worker. I had the stereo we had as loud as it would go right by my head. I was trying to play like war pigs and paranoid. I had no idea what I was doing. My dad walks downstairs and he goes, no, it was the only time he put his foot down. And he was like, <laughs> he's like, no, I'm not working from dust to dawn, you know, whatever, just to come home to listen to this. And I was like, damn, dad. So he goes, why don't you get a guitar? It has an, a volume knob on it and you can take it with you. So I like I was kind of like, all right, here we go. So when I originally picked up a guitar, being a lefty, I was holding a righty upside down and we had this old acoustic. Ended up trading that in for a starter electric and I still was doing that. But with this starter electric, you've got a guitar lesson with it. So I walk in, I'm holding the guitar and this guy, he had an Eddie Van Halen bumblebee, you know, and he was like this like total shredder guy. And he goes, hey, man, your guitar is upside down. You know, you flip it. So I'm like, oh, okay. And I'm like this. And I'm like, and then he goes, you got to use a pick because I was hitting it with my thumb. So I tried to use a guitar pick for 
the better probably two, two and a half years. And I was really trying and I just didn't have a great control or consistency. I would always drop it or I'd always like my hand would be so tense when I was playing. It just didn't come out right. And I'll never forget, like I started to hear guys like Jeff Beck and Derek Trucks. I saw him play a, a live show and I went, whoa, he doesn't use a pick. Listen to the way that sounds. And then I got into hearing guys like Mark Knopfler, Albert King. And I said, you know what? I'm just going to mess with it. So long story short, I started messing with it. And I came up with this kind of unorthodox picking technique that you see now. And it's just what what felt comfortable. And I just kind of developed it naturally over the years. And uh, yeah, now people are like, hey, you're the no pick guy. And I'm like, I guess. Also, just as intriguing watching your very straight index finger and the way you, but it's so accurate. It's, it's impressive. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's weird. They're like bent to the strings now. Like, I feel like I, you know, it's like when you do something for so long, like this finger is ready to play the guitar. Like it's, it's wild. Well, your dad was right. I mean, look at you now. You like I mentioned in the beginning, you're a Gibson brand ambassador. So what comes with that? Do you have like a semi full of Gibson guitars you know, sitting outside your house or something like that? <laughs> Haven't you guys ever seen a movie where it's like, hello, Mr. Ambassador? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. It sounds super important. <laughs> That's so right. I, I got to give you the quick rundown. So I've, I grew up in Wisconsin um, near Milwaukee. I actually was born in Waukesha. That's where Les Paul's from. Even before like I played guitar, like I was like, I remember there was always Les Paul Parkway signs and you, there was, you know, like murals and monuments and stuff from. So um, I remember knowing what that was before I started to play. And my first real great guitar, it truly was like an Epiphone Les Paul. And it was like, don't even look at it. You know, I'd be like shining it up like it was like the most prized possession. So I've been playing Gibson and Les Paul style guitars since I started. All right, here's the long story short. Uh, the new ownership, Cesar. He's one of the head guys. He called me one day. We struck up a friendship when he was coming on board. And at this point, I had already had one signature model out and the second on the way. And he goes, hey, man, come over to my house. I'm down here in Nashville now. And I said, what's up? And he goes, I have Greeny. And I was like, Greeny? Like Peter Green from Fleetwood Mac? Peter Green's guitar? Oh, yeah. Man. That was owned by Gary Moore. Right. And now it's owned by Kirk Hammett. I said, send me your address. <laughs> I'm on my <laughs> Yeah, right. You know, so I go over there and he's like, go ahead. So I got to spend like hours playing this, you know, guitar that we all have heard. of. So it was incredible. And afterwards we were sitting there talking and he said, he asked what I had coming up, what I had going on. And we were just started talking. I said, you know, what would be cool one day, man. I said, you know, as I grow, my career grows, I would love to, you know, become like a brand ambassador, like Slash or like, you know, uh, Jerry Cantrell or some of these other guys that are doing it. And, uh, he goes, Hmm, that's a great idea. You know? Yeah. And I didn't think anything of it. So I'm driving home thinking about Greeny, just like, wow, that was amazing. And I get a text message from his assistant and it says, Hey, Jared, we want to formally, you know, offer you to become Gibson's next brand ambassador. And as you guys can only assume I was driving the car and I was like, what? You know, this all happened in the same day. It all happened in the same day. And then on Monday, um, Monday, I had a conference call with them. And basically what it means is I've already had such a long time working with Gibson and I've been able to develop really two, two cool Epiphone Les Paul models, but also I do a bunch of different uh, content for them online. I do clinics when I'm on tour, all this different kind of meet and greet stuff. And, uh, it's pretty cool because 
you know, a lot of people are probably like, who the hell is this guy? I've never heard of him. And it's like, yeah, because, you know, I haven't been around that long, but I've been around long enough to get that going. And um, it's just really cool because now it means more signature models. I kind of put my ties a little bit more into the company. And um, it's awesome. I mean, it's a dream come true for a kid who had posters of Les Pauls on his wall. Well, it's the credibility. I mean, it's the instant credibility too, especially amongst the guitar community. Absolutely, man. You know, and even outside of the guitar community, I'm not a guitar player, but you certainly know Gibson. You know those, you know, you know those classic guitars, of course. And you're representing them now. Yeah, you're representing that con that company. So that's what an honor, man. It's great. Yeah, man. I'm grateful. Seriously. To Andy's question, is it a tractor trailer? Full of guitars. <laughs> well, guys, I actually have an airplane hanger. I was going to say. Oh, I was going to say like a Winnebago or something, but okay. Man. No, I just got a Volkswagen out back now. <laughs> VW microbus full of uh, stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Hugh actually did the album cover uh, for Joe Bonamassa, Time Clocks, uh, Joe's last, most recent record. Awesome. Um, did all the artwork for that. So tell us about your relationship with Joe. I mean, I know you played with him a little bit. So what's that story? Joe was coming to rise as I was picking up the guitar and figuring it out. And I remember I was a huge, I was hugely inspired by Joe. I thought like, to me, he was like the guy, you know, every era has their guy and, and he was just coming up. And I remember I was like, I'm never going to be able to play like this guy. He was so good. And, um, I ended up meeting him for the first time, probably in 2014 or 15. Uh, he had a, a show and somehow I got backstage with a friend. We kind of like snuck backstage and I was like, Hey, Joe, what's up? Like super random. Like, what am I doing back here? And he's like, hey. And that was it. And then a few weeks later, I ran into him at uh, the NAM show and I saw him there and I was like, hey, Joe. And I could tell he kind of remembered me because I was just at this point, I was just some skinny like kid from Wisconsin with big, crazy hair. And uh, then uh, many, many years go past and a, a mutual friend of ours, he runs this um, awesome website. It's called the Les Paul Forum. I got in touch with him through Gibson and releasing guitars and he and Joe are like best friends, but also they own a bunch of guitars together. Like really, you know, these Holy mm. Grail 1950s Gibson Les Pauls, among other things, Stratocasters. And, you know, they were thick as thieves, best buddies. And uh, we all started to hang out together. And then Joe like sat down with me and we jammed one day and he was like, I think like, he kind of saw where I was coming from. Mm. And the next time I was in Los Angeles, I we exchanged numbers and I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And he goes, hey, man, come up to my spot. And he's got a spot up in Laurel Canyon in the Hollywood Hills. And I go up there and it's um, he calls it like the uh, he has like a museum up there. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen any of this stuff. It's just like it's literally like a guitar player's heaven. And he's showing me, hey, you ever play an original Flying V? And I'm like, what? So anyways. We strike it off and he realized this was at the end of 2019. He goes, at this point in 2019, I toured for 308 days straight. That's busy. Yeah, um, just out doing club tours. And then we'd get on a support slot with either, I remember we went out with UFO, then we went out with Saxon, Blue Oyster, all these classic rock tours. And then I'd go out and do some of my own club shows, but I did not sleep in my bed for 308 nights. And Joe goes, he goes, man, you must really, really want to do this. I said, dude, this is all I want to do. And that was a, that's all it took. And then we struck it off. And uh, man, we've been great friends. And the story with him, you know, getting to jam with him and, and getting, I had him guest on a song, Threw Me to the Wolves. And it was so funny because I call him and I go, 
Hey, Joe, what's up? He's like, hey, what are you doing? I said, hey, man, I got this track. What, would you? He's like, before I finish what I'm saying, he's like, I'd love to. And I'm like, holy shit, Joe Bonamassa is going to play on my track. He goes, it's going to cost you. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> hold on, hold on, hold on. And he goes, it's going to be two Diet Cokes. And I was like, I can afford that, my man. <laughs> nice. So this is Threw Me to the Wolves, right? That just got re-released uh, earlier this year. So so I saw there's like five versions of it. I listened to the first one. In succession, it was hard to tell. Is is there different guitar players on each version on there? So what we wanted to do, basically, all in, I was trying to buy time before I could release more music. And I went, you know what? I got this cool tune. I think I'm going to do some re-records -re with different people. So Joe was the only other guitar player that came and guested. But there was also this, this singer that's down here in Nashville. I'm totally in love with her voice. She's got the most epic vibe. Her name's Maggie Rose. She's out right now with the um, the Almond Family Revival thing that's going down right now. Um, she's just an awesome singer-songwriter. I mean, when I see her sing and play, it's like, you know, it's like when you, you're like, okay, God must be real if that voice comes out. You know what I mean? Maggie Rose? Maggie Rose. Well, I saw you playing with Joe um, on a video, almost like a battle. <laughs> I saw that. Was the Viper Room, yeah? Mm-hmm, at the Viper Room. Here's the funny part. Yeah, Joe walks in and he comes up and he's like, you know, that was another thing. I was staying at his house when I was in LA and he goes, oh, you're doing a show at the Viper. I said, yeah, man. And he goes, you know, I've never played there. I've always wanted to play there. Coming from the guy who's played, you know, Red Rocks. Sure, yeah. Beacon Theater, whatever. And I said, you want to play? <laughs> he goes, <laughs> yeah, man. So all of a sudden he comes up and the people... Joe and I were so loud. I don't know if you can tell in that clip, but the people in the front, I think that their faces were completely blown away. <laughs> it was just so loud. I can't so. imagine. Yeah, in that place. Yeah. So obviously the pandemic was rough on all musicians, but you got to tell us the story, man. You screwed your arm up right after, right after, right? When it was like time to get rolling. So what, what's the story there? And what was the recuperation like? It sucked. So I'll tell you guys the story. You'll probably laugh at me. I was surfing, right? Great white shark came straight in. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I was like, this is good. I'm but you had me. Ass. You did have me. I was like, <laughs> I wish that were the story. If, if that were the story, I'd probably have a New York Times bestseller. Um, no, so we were on tour with some friends of mine in the band Blackstone Cherry. And we were playing in Florida. And we just gotten off stage. All is well. Everyone's hauling ass to get our gear off stage. So I go, I have this amplifier case with a handle on the top. I go mid-walk to go pick it up, right? No problem. I hear over the house music, a little pop in my arm. Now I thought maybe I'd pop my elbow or something. So what do I do? I drop the case and I go, what the hell was that? I could still move my arm, but I was like, something's wrong. You know, almost as if I thought, did I tear a bicep what happened so i go up to my drummer dennis and i'm like dude something's wrong with my arm he goes let's go get mike our tour manager so i walk up to him and guys i'm not even kidding i hold up my arm he goes well it's definitely must just be pulled or something if you're you're just having a hard time he goes because if you broke it you would feel it so i go like this with my arm and i go to move it as it, moving it away from my body and i lose control of it and i have to grab it to bring it back he goes Okay, cool. We're going to the ER immediately. So what happened is on both arms, I have tiny stress fractures along the bone. Don't know how long they've been there. 
don't know really what they're from, maybe doing sports, whatever. But what happened is I chipped a little piece of the bone off. And when I did that, it's right over the elbow, right? So I go in there to the ER and the guy goes, I think you blew your bicep out. And I'm like, okay, what does that mean? He goes, oh, let's figure this out. They take an x-ray. You see the bone, you see a little chip on it. And I went, uh-oh. So they said, well, we can't let you go. We're going to need to have an emergency surgery to put that back on. Here I'm thinking, I'm in the middle of a tour and I'm going, no, just just do what, stitch me. Like, I'll be fine. I just got to get through it, you know? Put some so, new skin on it. and uh, Yeah. 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 Rub some dirt on it. No, really, though, I was like, I'll do whatever it takes to get out of here. Like, get me out of here. And long story short, what I thought was just, you know, popping my elbow out, I chipped the damn bone on this up here. And yeah, then I found myself uh, in a uh, in the middle of COVID, basically, in this Florida hospital, getting a surgery on my arm. And I remember waking up, you guys, and he goes, can you move your fingers? And I was like, yes. But it was just one of those moments where, like, something so stupid turned into, but but really where what happened after that was I turned into, like, a, like a, I said, I'll never, you know, take this for granted again. Making the record yeah, right. and doing everything. Make you I, appreciate things more, yeah. Yeah, no reason to be in a hurry to grab that amp. Let somebody let somebody else do that. You you need those arms, man. You yeah, know? man. So that really opened my eyes, and uh, all is well now, thankfully. But as you guys know, with anything medical, it's scary for a minute because you try and hold it together, but then you go, "Dang, what now? What you know?" But thankfully, well, those are the two miracles, right? Birthing and healing. Yeah, and that's, that's right. That's crazy, but uh, thankful, man. You never know what's going to happen. And, you know, music can do weird things. Like guys can get arthritis in their fingers. I mean, I've had two rotator cuff surgeries, on one on each shoulder. So I've got bold on shoulders here. And for, you know, a rock drummer, it's kind of a drag. So I can still pound hard. I just pound closer to me. There's not none of this shit anymore. That shit's gone. No more gongs like, you know, 360 around me like I used yeah, to Yeah, it's all a factor of... uh then when it happens, it's just like, if you can heal, it's like, you're grateful. But yet, like you said, the healing, man, it's crazy. Now you mentioned some of your influences earlier, and we always like to talk about album artwork. So I'm going to kick it over to Hugh. Typical to your genre of music. I mean, you know, Joe, for example, would be on the cover. Um, Clapton would be on the cover. It's, it's very much a guitarist's thing. But even we we talked to Peter Frampton. It was just very much. It was just the way you promoted and and sold a single musician like a guitar player. And yet, out of the blue, I see this uh, down the drain, which is very very clever with the toy boats. You know, that's got a very hypnosis vibe to it, which I think is kind of cool. Um, and I, I look back through some of the catalog, the Old Glory and and the and the Wild Revival. That's got a tattoo GNR kind of. When it comes to album art, I mean, you just leave it up to the to the label or are you very involved uh, and how much did album art speak to you when you were growing up and buying albums did you care about covers or was it more yeah well it's funny you bring up that gnr mark vachon a guy in los angeles who designed some of the early gnr when i was living in la i met him and i was like hey would you ever do like a scribble for me he goes yeah man for sure and he scribbled that piece with the skulls and the guitar and uh, I was like, that's going on my EP. So it's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, you nailed that. But um, album art was just as important to me growing up 
as the actual music. I looked back recently, I found some uh, clips of when I was a kid. And so where I used to practice in my parents' basement, it was all cinder blocks. I had a girlfriend at the time, she was really good illustration. So I had her do the dark side of the moon, right? That was on the side of the wall. And then the other side was, since it was blocked, Pink Floyd the wall, right? And I had her do all this stuff. And it, I mean, album artwork, I, even like one of my favorite bands ever, Mountain, right? The, the artwork that uh, Felix Papillardi's wife made for the covers. Like, I remember being a kid and seeing that and being like, whoa, right? As we all were with certain records, it's like you'd hold it, Cream, Wheels of Fire. It was a crazy psychedelic. And I was like, what is this? Or Hendrix, Axis Bold as Love, whatever it was. Album art definitely spoke to me just as much as the music. Um, going towards with my releases, uh, the Old Glory in the Wild Revival, that was the first record I'd put out. And I remember that was the first time I'd ever been to Europe. And that picture I thought was so cool. Just like a total screamer, awesome picture. So that was kind of cool. And then Black Magic was definitely an ode to uh, one of my big influences, T-Rex. That was my T-Rex moment. Steve Miller moment. When, I mean, that spirit of metal, that's a beautifully designed logo. And I saw that made a reappear, made a, uh, another appearance on uh, Black Magic. That The look of the cover is very, it's, it's a great graphic, the way you're photographed. It's a very sophisticated piece. It's nice. Very cool. Thank you, man. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for that. And I think that down the drain as well, that hypnotic vibe, you, you, you know, you're reading everything, obviously. Obviously, you know, but like, I just thought that was so cool. And it, it's just a certain element of imagery. And then along with the music video, in the music video, we had certain sequences where things were always spinning. A boy going around with a girl on, her, on his bike mixing the drink you know all of these different elements of just kind but of this. the simplicity of that drain just the vortex of the water in the boat it had some of the sort of weird sort of primary color feel that you got from presence by zeppelin or something like that it, it's a little surreal actually it's not it, it's not just charming it's a little bit mysterious it's kind of cool yeah definitely and uh I, i'd have to give it up especially as of recent there's a, a guy out of texas i've been working with his name scotty roller and he's just a really, really awesome guy. So going to your point too, talking about actually, if I have any development in the artwork, a lot of times I would, I would come up with some random ideas like for previous releases and we would roll with something like that using, you know, and I don't want to say this in a, a weird way, but whoever we could, that could kind of get it done. Uh, as of recent, uh, this guy I'd met, this Scotty, uh, I met him, he, his son was a fan of mine and he just happened to do this stuff. So it was really cool to, to team up with him because he goes, man, I got to get this right. Otherwise, my son's never going to let me hear the end of it. So that's kind of a cool thing. Well, yeah. if ever we get to work together, I'm I'm good for four Diet Pepsis. You, let's go. I'm holding <laughs> you to it. I'll go to Costco. <laughs> In that case, you just get you a leader. I thought he'd want a martini or two, actually, probably. No, and Hugh, come on. Now the, now the price is going to go up. I'm going to go to martinis. Going to go. For Hugh, I, listen, I can do a whole a flow of drinks, my man. We'll, we'll get it. We'll get you together. <laughs> so my question is, who's your bass player and your drummer? Okay, so let's start with the drummer. Drummer's name is Dennis Holm. He's originally from Gothenburg, Sweden. I met Dennis when I first moved to Los Angeles, 2011. And one of the first guys I met, I heard him practicing playing drums at uh, in this rehearsal room. And I literally walked in. I was like, hey, man, if I get some gigs, would you want to play? You want to jam? And he was like straight from Sweden. He's like, yeah, sure. So a week later, I call him up. 
said, Hey man, I got us a gig out in the middle of the desert in Indio. And, uh, I said, let's, let's get together. Let's jam. Um, and we started to play together basically the moment I started my trio and we've been playing together ever since he was in Los Angeles, just like I was for, he was there for about almost nine years, whereas I was there for about eight. And then it went into now I moved to Nashville. He moved with his wife to Nashville. So we've been playing together for quite a long time. And there's a lot to be said, as you as you know, probably when you play with him for so long, the uh, he already knows where I'm going. He knows. Yeah, the longer you guys do that, the more that'll keep happening. You know, I've been in the same band for 27 years and it's like even playing, you know, the same tune, even though it's not exactly the same, you kind of know, you know, you know where it's going. Yeah, man. And I think that's so cool. And uh, that's just something that develops, obviously, as you said, over time. And as far as bass players, I've kind of had a bass player curse. And I don't know if someone put a curse on me. And it's not in a bad way. But what usually ends up happening is in recent times, there would be something as if, okay, we're going on this tour and our original bass player. Yeah, let's go. And then it almost felt like it was too long. They were out on the road for too long. And so I've, I've had a hard time uh certainly with commitment of staying on the road especially when i say all right guys it's february we're gonna basically be on the road until august and they're like you know but um the guy that i've been working with lately he's awesome he's from italy he uh i met him i did a camp with a bunch of guitar players about two months ago um it was under paul gilbert and it, it was crazy that i was even invited because it was all these like super shredders like i was on stage with paul gilbert george lynch uh, Andy Timmons, um, who else was up there? Greg Howe. It was like this crazy shredders. And then there was me. And um, we had Paul on and we had Andy on. Oh, you had Paul on? And, yeah. And Andy Timmons as well. Yeah. What an insane guitar. Yeah. What he an was, insane when music. we talked to him, he was playing like Procol Harum stuff and Beatles stuff. He was and, really great. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. Very, very deep. Guys, I've never heard into that yeah. 60s thing. Yeah, man. I've never heard someone do that. Yeah. The Beatles thing. I was like, but anyways, I met Diego at that camp. He was one of the instructors and he would always jam later at night with all the students. So I was bored sitting in my hotel room and I was like, let me go jam down there with the, the students. So I go down there and man, this guy was like an encyclopedia. He's my age. He was, I think he was, he's 30. He was like an encyclopedia. He knew every tune. And I just said to him, like I did with Dennis, Hey man, if I get some gigs, you want to go on tour? And he goes, yes, I'm available anytime. I hit him up a week later. I said, hey, I'm going on a tour with Zach Wilde and Black Label Society. You want to go? He goes, tell me what day I need to be there. And that was it. We've been playing ever since. So from a live standpoint, we always like to talk about live shows. But what was your first show that you remember buying a ticket for as a fan that you went to? Okay. So the first show, my dad bought me a ticket. You guys are going to laugh. Weird Al. Awesome. That's okay. That's all right, man. <laughs> Weird Al still sells tickets too, man. He he sells out. Yeah, yeah. man. Yes, he does. That. that was one. I played in the orchestra with him recently. So the second, so the second question is, what what's the first one that you went to that you were super pumped about? Like you were like, this is this is my thing, you know? So I would say the first show that I ever went to that I was super pumped about, it was like it was like my rite of passage into rock and roll. I went and I saw ZZ Top with Ted and Ted Nugent. Kenny Wayne Shepherd opening. Yeah, where I grew up in Wisconsin. It was I lived right down the street from Alpine Valley Music Theater. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. Great place. Played there many times. I was gonna say I'm sure Dane's played there. Um, that was my that was where we go to see shows. So that was the first weekend, the first shows I ever saw. 
And I'll never forget the sound of those guitars and that band through a PA, a hot summer night. And it was just, you know, we were up in the grass, me and my friends, and we were just like, man, this is like the power of the music. You know, it was like, this is incredible. The next weekend I got to go to Ozfest, which was Black Sabbath and all these heavy metal, metal bands. And then it was uh, the Grateful Dead the next weekend. And then I, I just kept going to all these shows. And that was like my first summer of concerts. And uh, yeah, man, that's it. I was hooked. I worked on a bunch of the Ozfest uh, shows. I remember, I'll never forget one time um, had Ozfest in Indy and Revolver Magazine was doing an out or a cover shoot. And it was to be like the main bands of Marilyn Manson, Slipknot and Black Sabbath. And so I kind of had to help wrangle everybody. So I remember that day I had to go go and knock on the doors like, hey, we're ready to do the photo shoot and in watch Slipknot with all their masks, you know, in watch Marilyn Manson with their whole get up and then in watch Sabbath. And it was interesting. I was standing by a guy at the time and uh, that worked at the venue and he like, you know, nudged me and he said, is it just kind of weird, but isn't despite all the masks and makeup, Tony Iommi is still the spookiest guy in the room, isn't he? <laughs> and he totally he's just dressed like a normal dude. Yeah, right. <laughs> he was. Yeah, it was. He looks like a wizard or so. Yeah, yeah. Tony Iommi's always had that look, hasn't he? Yeah, he. Just, I mean, There's he looks awesome. Been. No, no, no oh, doubt yeah. about it. But I was like, yeah, that hair. Is. That hair's a little blue though, isn't it? A little blue black. Maybe you, you know. know it's so, all right, whatever. <laughs> but that with the Iron Cross, I was always like, oh, yeah, he's always God. had. Yeah. And, you know, he's got plastic fingertips on two of his fingers, too. And, and did you guys know, uh, odd little uh, piece of in information here, the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus that was recorded in 1968 has Jethro Tull with Tony Iommi on guitar. Check Dude, it out. I got to go back and watch it. Yeah, it's really cool. Really? I've, I've watched that like three or four times. He's really? the only time he played one gig with him. That's Tony Iommi playing guitar with Jethro Tull. Doing the very first song from the from this was uh, I forget the name of this. Yeah, album. man, it's great too. What is the name? It's of very it's cool. It's really kind of a weird jazzy song. He that sings in a awesome. real strange voice. Check it out. Yeah, it's from Rock and Roll Circus. Jethro Tull. How much do you write on on acoustic guitar, and how much do I get to hear of you playing acoustic guitar? Great question. I write probably sixty percent on acoustic guitar. Yeah, but do you does it always parlay to something louder and more suitable to the trio, or do you ever get into more more intimate sort of? Uh... I've definitely gotten to more intimate settings, um, especially you know I've done certain. Uh, I did a, a show, a live stream during uh, quarantine that was just me on acoustic singing, playing guitar. Um, I've done. Where do I? I'll send it to you. That's there's that show is actually uploaded to YouTube. Um, I went to my favorite guitar store. It's called Carter Vintage Guitars, and I went and I did a seven song set in their showroom, and it was really nice. really fun. I'd like to check that out, man. Well, it's weird, you guys. As you know, it's one thing standing with the band. It's almost like I have a, a heavy artillery, right? Because it's like I can. I always say that my guitar is my blanket, like it's my shield. So if I have a guitar, it's like I'm good for anything. But when it's just me on an acoustic, there's nothing to hide behind. That oh, was yeah. a, a huge fortress of of way before way before controllers and laptops. It was, you know, everything from Mellotron to CP70s, Fender Rhodes. You could you could hide behind that gear, you know. But ask asked me to play something in in a living room on piano is terrifying. Yeah. When I moved to Nashville, I was seeing all of these people sit with a guitar and sing these so the like. 
obviously beautifully written songs, but um, so delicately. And there was something about that that I was like, man, that is, there is power. There is a lot of power in, in that way of kind of translating these songs. And so I've definitely made a gain to, to add that more. It's uh, call me, uh, call me hard headed, man, but I've just been bashing with the trio and with this, this new record, man, it is a, it is a total electric. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> when does, when are the rest of the tunes out? There's, are there five or six of them are available now from the new project, but the rest will come out in January. Yep. January 13th. You watching for that? I got one other, just a weird question. I was going to ask you a few of your songs that you got kind of a like on your mellower parts that are like in the intricate stuff, not the solos, but I hear kind of a uh, Leslie sound. Is that a, oh, like yeah. a real super? Is that a Leslie cabinet, or is that just an effects pedal of some sort? It's really a nice sound. Is it a real Leslie cabinet? It is a real Leslie. I thought I thought it might be. I thought it might be. I love that sound. Well, me too, man. And and I, I've used pedals, and they don't really. You can get there, but there's something about the weight of the real Leslie. I wondered, yeah. We're talking about your finger picking style. You mentioned Mark Knopfler, and I've always thought of him as a an interesting crossover between someone who sings as a singer and songwriter does, like a Jack Brown or you know Don Henley, or whatever. But he brings it with his guitar chops and so on. It's so good to listen to him live. Absolutely, man. It's he is a huge influence on me, especially especially when it's coming out for sure. Thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate the time. Are you kidding me, you guys? It was awesome chatting with you, man. Was awesome. All right, fellas. Have a great night, man. Thank you guys. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.